0: Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Cale. I'm on the staff team here at Inspire St. James. Uh, and it's really great to see you here this Sunday uh, after Christmas. Can you believe it? Only 361 more days until Christmas 2020. Wow. No, more like, well, now it's all over. Um, you know all that anticipation you know we did the carol services the advent candles all the shopping and family and travel i hope it was you know everything that you dreamed that it would be fulfilled all your desires for christmas um, but christmas is a, is a big deal and it's a big deal because we're celebrating jesus coming to us but it's such a big deal that sometimes we're tempted to think that that's the end of the story you know like john o said Christmas hasn't ended. This is just the beginning. You know, we're only at chapter 2, chapter 3 of Matthew. The story is just beginning, but we can think, you know, the angels came to Mary, the shepherds watched their flocks by night, Jesus is born, the end, like it's a nice story. Um, But no, it's just getting started. Jesus is the, the king that's coming, we've been singing about, coming to cleanse the world of darkness, to free us from our sins. And if we think of Christmas Day as the end of the story, then we can be in danger of of underestimating uh, Jesus as a coming King. We can think of him just as the humble baby and not the conquering King. So this morning we're looking at this passage, uh, this uh, sermon from John the Baptist, about what does it look like to be ready for Jesus coming? What does it look like to be ready for Jesus to work in you and through you in 2020? What does it look like to be prepared for Jesus to reign as king in your life. Well, that was the mission of John the Baptist, to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. And so he, he has some hard words for us, so let's go and look at it together. Uh, the first thing John the Baptist says is to repent as preparation for Jesus. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, So so who is this John the Baptist guy? In in the Gospel of Luke, it talks a lot about John the Baptist and how his birth was miraculous. It was foretold by angels, a lot like Jesus' birth. Jesus later on says that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. I mean, that's high praise from Jesus. But Matthew just jumps right in, and and, uh, John the Baptist is out here kind of randomly in the wilderness preaching. And he's wearing clothes made of camel's hair, And has a leather belt around his waist, eating locusts. This kind of like weird information about his wardrobe and his diet. What's all that about? Well, Matthew mentions these details because this was the same thing that Elijah wore. Elijah was the, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And Matthew's giving all these details to help you see this is a prophet of God. John the Baptist is a prophet, so he came to speak the words of God. And Matthew has in mind one specific prophet that John the Baptist is. He, said, he mentions this in, uh, in verse 3, he mentions this passage from Isaiah 40. It says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So, this was John's mission to prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And he's not talking about building roads or like making nice paths for Jesus to walk on. He's talking about preparing ourselves for the Lord, preparing our hearts giving him access to our lives. And so how do you do that? How do you prepare the way for the Lord? Well, he tells us in his preaching in verse 2, he says, repent, that's how you prepare for Jesus. What is repentance? It might be a word that you hear a lot, or maybe you don't hear a lot, but it's an important word. What does it mean? I think we get our answer down here. If we look down at verse 6, we see how the people respond to John's call to repent. In verse 6, they come confessing their sins and were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So there it is. Repentance is confessing our sins. But it's not just confessing in words. It's not just saying the words or like listing off, oh, here's all the wrong things that I've done. True confession comes from our heart. True confession, true repentance, means actually seeing what's wrong with our sin. It means feeling sorry for it and and resolving to, to change. It means realizing this, the, the true ugliness of our sin. When, when I hurt someone, when I sin against someone, not only am I hurting them, but I, I'm hurting God. I'm sinning, sinning against God because he created this person. He loves them. He doesn't want them to be hurt. So it adds another dimension to my sin. It's, it's not just sin against other people, but it's sin against God as well. So we need to see that, and we, we need to be sorry for it. That's repentance. Repentance. Charles Spurgeon, who is a 19th century uh, pastor in London, he wrote that true repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we've committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. So we need to see the real evil of our sin and turn our hearts to follow God. That's repentance. So you might be wondering, how does that, how does repentance prepare us for Jesus Well, what if, imagine you found out that the queen was coming for dinner tomorrow night at your flat. How would you prepare? What would you do? I mean, some of us might act different ways, but I bet you would probably clean, clean the house, you know, and not just tidy up, but like really clean. Um, You'd probably make sure you you, uh, had the right tea, you know, whatever the queen likes, get the groceries for your your best meal. I know I would probably Google like, how are you supposed to act around the queen? What are the rules? Because I don't know. But there's actually a step before that, preparation before that. Do you see it? There's, before the actual cleaning happens, before the Googling happens, there's another step of preparation. It's, it's seeing that something needs to be done. It's looking around the house and saying, wow, this, this place is a mess. Something needs to be done about it. Or before you Google the rules, you, you have to realize, wow, I don't know how I'm supposed to act. I need to figure this out. And so the, the step of preparation at the very beginning is seeing the, seeing the need to do something to change. And preparing for Jesus doesn't mean just cleaning up our life to make sure that there are no sins around when he shows up. Preparing for Jesus means seeing our sins and repenting of them, saying, I don't want to live like this. I want to change, and I need help. See, Christians aren't the ones who have their lives all worked out and have everything perfect. Christians are repenters. Christians are the ones who look around and see, wow, I'm a mess. They go around, you know, lifting up the sofa and looking under there, looking behind the doors and being like, oh, this is bad. I'm really sinful. I need help. I need a savior. So don't be afraid to see the mess of your sin. See the true ugliness of it and turn away from it. Repent today. Just like the people in verse 5 and 6 did, they prepared the way for Jesus by confessing their sins and repenting. Next thing is, uh, John makes it clear that everyone needs to repent. Look down with me in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Well, strong words. What's going on here? Why is John so harsh towards these guys? I mean, it feels like a, a sharp turn from the Christmas message. And then the next thing that happens is this. Why is he so upset? The Pharisees and Sadducees are, are two groups of Israel's leaders. They're probably the ones who are most serious about following all the rules. So why is it that John is so mad at them or so upset and has such harsh words? Well, I think the answer is right there in verse 7. It says, He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing. As you see, in, in verse 6, the people were coming out to confess their sins and be baptized, But the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're not coming to repent. They're not coming to be baptized. They're just coming to where all this is going on. They want to be, you know, a part of it. They want to be a part of what God's doing. They want to be around it. But personally, they don't want to repent. In fact, they'd probably be offended that you would even suggest that they need to. But John, he calls out their excuse. He says, don't say to yourselves that you have Abraham as your father. Because the Pharisees and Sadducees would be saying, How dare you tell us to repent? We're sons of Abraham. And that might seem like a, a kind of a weird excuse uh, to give. I don't know if you think of that excuse. Um, but what's going on here? What does Abraham have to do with any of this? Well, think back all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the very first story of Adam and Eve. And we get the story of the first sin. That happens in history. And you're probably familiar with it. Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden in this wonderful relationship with God. And they get seduced and tempted to sin by a snake. And God, when they do sin, God curses the snake. And here's what he says in Genesis 3 verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. So what he's saying is there's going to be a, a separation there's going to be opposition between the the offspring of the woman who want to follow God who want to obey God and the offspring of the snake who want to follow sin and not follow God And Abraham and his people saw themselves as the descendants of the woman they're the ones who are God's people they want to follow God so that's how they saw themselves And so that's why the Pharisees and Sadducees are saying we're Abraham's children we're the good guys but the tragedy is, John says, you're not the good guys. You're the snakes. You're a brood of vipers. That's what he says. You think you're the good guys, but it turns out you're the snakes. And that's, I mean, a shocking rebuke for them. But I think especially for a lot of us, if you're, if you're like me, who grew up in a, in a Christian family, going to church, you might, be, uh, you might be tempted to start thinking, well, you know, I've been going to church for years. My parents were committed Christians. I read my Bible and pray. If anyone is part of the people of God, it's me. And if we're not careful, we can start to sound like the Pharisees and Sadducees. They don't even see it. They don't even see their need to repent. But everyone needs to repent. Did you know there's actually a whole Wikipedia page for the non-apology apology? You might know what this is. It's when someone or some company gets caught in some wrongdoing and they have, to make, uh, they have to make an apology. They have to apologize to maybe keep their job or keep the stocks from falling. But they don't actually want to apologize. They don't think they've done anything wrong. So they don't want to apologize. So what they do is the non-apology apology. And you might not need any help like spotting this. You might have a good like radar for the non-apology. But here are some key, key phrases to look for. Maybe you've heard this before. I'm sorry if anyone was offended by what I said. Okay. Or, I'm sorry that you feel that way. That's not a real apology. Or how about the the really vague, some mistakes were made. It's like, yeah, obviously, mistakes were made by you. My favorite non-apology is from Joe Barton, who was a congressman in Texas last year. And here's what he said. He said, if anything I said this morning has been misconstrued to the opposite of what I meant... I want to apologize for the misconstrued misconstruction. (laughs) Clearly, that guy doesn't feel bad for what he's done or said. He's making the public statement. He's doing the right things publicly to to get past it. But in his heart, he sees nothing wrong. He sees nothing to to apologize for. And the Pharisees, they've checked all the boxes. They make the right statements. They've shown up at the right place. But in their hearts, they don't want to repent for anything. They don't see any need to. And and we know that's wrong when we see the non-apology, but it's a lot harder to spot in ourselves. But unless we really see our need to repent, we we can't be the true people of God, and and we might end up being the snakes. It's a hard thing to face, but we all need to repent. So today, are there areas in your life that you need to repent of? Do you make excuses? Do you tell yourself, "No, I'm a good person. I don't need to repent." Are you offended right now at this message or at this passage that says repent? Well, John tells us what what we need to do in verse 8. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He tells the Pharisees and Sadducees that. You see, salvation is offered to everyone, even the snakes, even the worst sinners. But the way to receive it is to admit that you need it. So I think a good prayer for us might be, Psalm 139 um, verse 24, says, "Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting." So say, God, look at my heart, look at my desires, see if am I fooling myself and thinking that I'm fine when really I need to repent. I want to turn away from sin and follow you." And then lastly, We need to repent because Jesus is coming in judgment. We've talked about how we all need to prepare for Jesus by repenting. And in verse 11, John reminds us of that. He says, after me comes one who's more powerful than I am. Jesus is that powerful king we've been waiting for, that we've sung about at Christmas. He he did come as a humble baby, but don't let that make you think that he's powerless or passive. He is powerful, and his coming means it's time to respond. It's time to act. Look at verse 12 at this little parable. It's talking about Jesus and says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, the picture of a threshing floor is probably a bit lost on us in modern London. Um, But it would have been a familiar symbol for uh, agricultural people like in ancient Israel. So the threshing floor is a place where they gather all the grain that they've got from the harvest, and they need to separate the the actual grain from the chaff, which is like the little flaky bit that you don't eat that surrounds the the seed, that surrounds the grain. And so what they do is they take this big winnowing fork, and they toss everything up in the air together. This is what I've read about. Um, They toss it up in the air, and the heavier grain falls straight back to the ground. The chaff is lighter and gets kind of blown off to the side. So the grain gets gathered up for the barn for eating. And the chaff gets burned off. So in this parable, Jesus is the one with the winnowing fork. And he's judging whether we, whether you and I, are wheat or are we chaff. So he's saying there's, there's two options. Which one do you want? And I think as we read it, it's pretty obvious which one we're supposed to want. The, the people who repent, turning from sin, reaching out to God as Savior, they are the wheat. The people who refuse to repent and say, I'm fine on my own, they are the chaff. And those who repent will be gathered into the barn, spend eternity in loving relationship with God. The ones who refuse to repent, the chaff, will get burned up in unquenchable fire of hell. So I think it's obvious which one we're meant to choose, right? It's like the would-you-rather game. Would you rather spend eternity in heaven or hell? Like, obviously, you're going to choose the better one. I don't think the problem is, which is understanding the point. I think the problem for us is that we really just don't believe this, or we don't want to believe it. You might be here, and, and, and you're not a Christian. You're very welcome here. Um, you might be thinking, well, this is exactly why I'm not a Christian, because I, I don't want to believe in a judging God who would send people to hell. And and maybe you are a Christian, but you're thinking, do we really need to talk about this? Is is it kind of counterproductive to talk about God's judgment or hell? Well, I don't think I'm going to like settle all the thoughts about it this morning, but let me just offer a couple things to think about. If you're someone who resists the idea of a judging God, I want you to consider your own desire for justice. You know, we desire justice on on a global scale when we want... um, politicians and corporations to stop putting their own interests above the interests of the people, we want that to stop. Or when we hear about human trafficking, we want that to end. We want it to stop. We want justice. We also want justice on, on a personal level. If someone's done us wrong or has really harmed us, we want, we want to be validated and we want them to be held accountable. I think we all think that justice is a wonderful thing when it's dealing with the evil that's out there in the world done to people like me or the people that i care about but the problem comes when when god's saying he's going to deal with all the evil in the world what about what about the evil that's in my heart what about my own sin i mean i'm not a human trafficker but do i sometimes objectify people isn't that the root of the same sin i mean i'm not i'm not a murderer but do i sometimes hate my neighbor isn't that the root of the same sin If Jesus has come to deal with all the sin and evil in the world, then we have to do something with the sin and evil in our own hearts. And then maybe if you're a Christian and you find this uncomfortable to think about, listen, I'm there with you. Uh, This is hard for me. Uh, Mark Jackson gave me a big smile when he asked me to preach this sermon because he knew it would make me uncomfortable. Um, But look, Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived, and he preaches about repenting and about hell. Jesus himself preaches the, the exact same thing word for word in the next chapter about repentance, and, and a lot about hell later on in Matthew. And so we can't just ignore it, we can't get around it. I think it's a little bit like uh, the pictures on the cigarette cartons, you know, the, the really graphic pictures of throat or mouth cancer that you can get from smoking cigarettes. And whenever I see those, I'm like, oh, that's, that's disgusting, I didn't, I didn't even mean to look at it why does this have to be here couldn't we just you know put some nice packaging on it and have some good branding and then I think we'd all probably feel better right and 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 we would at first but that's not the point the point is to look at it and say oh that is I don't want that I I should stop smoking or, or I shouldn't I shouldn't fool myself into thinking that smoking is just cool or harmless that's the point of the picture's and sometimes we can think, can't we just kind of skip over the judgment part or skip over thinking about hell? it, it just make us all happier. But, but we need to see the truth. We need to look at it, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Because the danger is worse than lung cancer. It's, it's unquenchable fire of hell. So I pray that, that that would make us serious about our own sin and repenting from it, turning away from it. And also, as Christians, it would make us urgent to share the good news about salvation with people that don't know Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to save us from our sin and from judgment. Matthew wrote this down. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus came all so that we wouldn't face judgment and hell. So our, our application is the same as before. It's repent. Jesus comes in judgment he's he's coming to judge between the wheat and the chaff and that doesn't mean he's coming to judge between good people and bad people because remember we all need to repent the wheat are the people who recognize their need to be saved and if you repent verse 11 says that Jesus will come he will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire So remember how repentance was just the preparation. It was just the the acknowledging the mess and wanting to change. Jesus is the one who comes and and cleans us up. He purifies us by his Holy Spirit. So we don't get the fire of hell. We get a purifying fire that makes us clean and makes us righteous. Repentance prepares our hearts because we accept our need for saving. Jesus is the one who comes and does that work of cleansing us from our sin. So as we, as we close today, as we close 2019 and, and look forward to 2020, Jesus is near to all of us. The kingdom has come. But don't take him lightly. Prepare your hearts for him by repenting of your sins. Turn to Christ as Savior. Don't be like the Pharisees and Sadducees who refuse to repent, who, who are offended at the even suggestion that they need it. We all need to repent. So I plead with you today today, Repent because Jesus, he will come and separate the wheat and the chaff. So the, the band is going to come up now, and we're going to sing another song. And I just want to recognize this a difficult topic might bring up some, some questions, some emotions, so do come in and chat with me after if you, if you want to talk some more. But for now, we're going to sing the next song um, that has words of real confession and repentance in it. And so use this as an opportunity not just to say the words... But to in your heart, turn away from sin and turn to Christ. Because he is faithful, he will forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So let's turn and sing now.